Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? Today, we are going to talk about the Black Panthers and the women who backed them up. <laughs> All right, let's get into this. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Episode 30, White Supremacy and the Black Panthers. This is big. This is a big topic. This is a big topic. I know. Um, so, Brooke, today I want to talk a little bit about a uh, few of the civil rights uh, leaders that um, I think get overshadowed by their significant others. Women get used a lot of times in historical portrayals. And when they want to, when people want to use history as propaganda, um, they can use women to basically say, to show that people were, were gentler or kinder or whatever. And when they want to show that a group of people were aggressive and violent and hostile and dangerous, they might hide the fact that women were there. Interesting. And, um, when it comes to the Black Panthers in particular, which the Black Panthers are um, a product of the assassinations of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, and um, they come about because they're done. They're done with the strategy of reform and, you know, peaceful yeah. protest. And, and patience. And, <laughs> and not that Martin Luther King was patient. He demanded things now, but, right. um, but they're, they're done with those things. And um, when you think of the Black Panthers, what is sort of like the visual that comes to mind for you? Um, the visual, I think it's the leather jackets, the berets, um, you know, fists in the air, like rebellion at its core and a lot of, you know, secret backroom meetings and underground renegades, you know, like people that were not, I don't know, out in the the front of the march, but they were charging the march. Yeah. And obviously that was like the dress code of the Black Panthers. Um, I also think of like duns, you know, and like these heavily armed. Yeah, much more militia type protesters. Yeah. And I think what's misleading about the visual that comes to mind is it's typically like male and it is... Not exactly. I, actually, I definitely visualize a lot of women when I think about Black Panthers more you so do? than I do like the MLK movement. And the only reason is because I think of the movie Forrest Gump when they finally meet the Black Panthers <laughs> at Washington. That was like my first visual rem- like memory of the Black Panthers at like probably like age eight or nine watching Good. that movie. And so there was a lot of women in the room, and I was like, "This is really violent for women to be there," and like. 
Yeah. Just kind of interesting that way. Yeah. But that's the, the first like image I have in my mind is Forrest Gump. Well, that's good. That's really good. I'm always amazed at how sometimes the media and Hollywood do a better job of racial equity than actual historians do. Um, and, and even being factually uh, correct. Um, what's interesting, I read an article from the History Channel just about the Black Panthers and kind of par for the course and everything related to women's history the article doesn't mention women as part of the panthers at all and um i think that is sort of case in point and then we'll talk in a little bit about um you know another historian howard zinn who is known for being very inclusive and even he doesn't include women in his stories about the black panthers 50% of the black panthers were women and but you don't see them represented in the party like when you think of like the big names like right you know Huey Newton Bobby Seale like you don't think top female leaders in in the Black Panther um and but 50 percent of them were women and actually one thing that's really interesting is at the um African-American History Museum down in D.C., their display of the Panthers, actually uh, one of the big images that they have in it is of these women holding their fists up, you know, doing what you just described. Um, It's all women leading the chant about, you know, about the pigs and, you know, whatever being being. Yeah, it's in um, No Justice, No Peace from the Black Panthers. Um, Oh, I don't know. I'm sure that there's a historical tie there I imagine I don't know I feel like that's something but yeah they're really powerful images I mean when you think about that group of people and the rebellion that they are trying to move forward it's so powerful Mm -hmm. well and it is like in the if you want to discredit the Black Panthers it is in your interest to show them as more hostile. And I think they're sort of like this eraser of the more peaceful things that they're doing, like the food programs for, um, for children and the communities and um, all the like networking and consolidating that they're doing of all these different groups that are working towards racial justice and they're giving a political platform um, to talk about those issues. Um, And and sort of how integral women were in just carrying on the day-to-day grind of the Black Panthers. And so I think if you want to show them as this hostile, militant, leftist, communist group, right, you're going to have to really show that and, and show them as this more militant one and more militant group. And, the, and I think... Um, people that have that sort of propagandist bias that are trying to cover up the true history of yeah. the Black Panthers are going to are going to erase women in that in that story. Well yeah, because they want to show violence and they want to show, you know, what this group did not accomplish through violence. Cause the message to, you know, your student is peaceful protest and, you know, go about it in the right way and and let democracy reign. And it's like you know, show the Black Panthers as a violent militia 
yeah. that, you know, took over. But at the same time, you're probably showing, you know, the Revolutionary War. That's a violent militia that took over. Are they not, are they not relatively the same? I don't know. Like that's just two dichotomies from two different perspectives. Yeah. So I do want to get into uh, the rise of the Black Panthers and some of this real history of, of the women that were there. Let's back up to the, the rise of the Black Panthers. So the Black okay. Panther Party is founded in 1966 by Huey Newton and Bobby Seale. Um, they are trying to improve relationships between police and the African-American people and basically demanding better treatment from the police. And, um, you know, we already talked a bit about how uniformly they dressed. Um, they are they had these armed citizen patrols in cities, um, which were pretty well established. And so people would um would just like patrol the streets and keep people safe. They would even like patrol the police. And, you know, like if the police went in and were doing things that they shouldn't be doing, the Black Panthers would be there and be like, hey, get out of here. You're not, you know, you're not following protocol. You're not doing what you should be doing. That's Um, dangerous, I'm sure. Just super dangerous. You're coming into a situation you're not in control of and a police officer is. That's, yeah. Good luck. Yeah. Um, One thing that's really interesting about the Black Panther Party is that it really depends on who you ask, how they would describe this party and what they did and what they were able to accomplish. And like every person has a really different perspective. And because it was a national party, they had 2000 members um, in 1968 across the country in different, you know, set up in different cities. And so that's going to give a lot of diversity of experience, right? Like the party in California could be really different than the party in Chicago. Um, and, uh, well, yeah, it's not like there's a national Instagram going on where they can all unite over the same social network and, and have the same messaging and the same marketing campaign, you know, very grassroots and underground a little bit you know it's not like they can send letters through the mail like old times <laughs> so I mean but they do they they are very organized um for the time and they um but but yeah there's going to be some diversity and of course there's a lot of opposition to the Black Panthers because you know this is post McCarthyism there's yeah. we're in the middle of the Cold War and so much of the Black Panther rhetoric is about how capitalism is problematic and um, and that, you know, com- socialist policies would be better and, and should be pursued. And, um, and just the timing of those comments in, during the Cold War could be... Yeah, really misconstrued. Yeah, really mis- misunderstood um, and and frankly dangerous for the people making those comments. Yeah, um, the Black Panther Party is obviously a more um, militant part of the larger civil rights movement. And um, how many members do you think there are at that time so the, of the Black Panther Party? Yeah. 
There's about 2,000. And they come about because Malcolm X, who's a a vocal part of the more, um, more militant, you know, spectrum of the civil rights movement, uh, Mm -hmm. is assassinated in 1968. And by the time Martin Luther King is assassinated later that year, um, it's the party is growing and growing and growing because people are basically saying, okay, here are two men that, that were very different in what they advocated for. And they both were killed. Um, and, and in both cases, um, you know, both of these guys had been tailed by police. They had been harassed and, um, and wiretapped by the FBI Um, and it's, you know, the FBI just using Martin Luther King as an example, um, in the fifties and sixties, they surveilled him. His entire house was wiretapped. Um, they listened in on all of his phone calls. Um, they called his wife at one point, Coretta Scott King, and basically played like told her that he was having an affair and like meddled in his life. They wrote him a letter um, that I think people should read in schools. Um, It's a letter that basically says he should kill himself. And if he didn't, um, they would give him a, like tell his wife about all these other affairs that he's had. Whoa. And like, this is a government agency that we employ as citizens doing this behavior to another citizen. Yeah. That is alarming. He was advocating for peaceful, nonviolent protest. And like He's advocating for equal rights. Like, my goodness. How awful. To be able to vote and like not be lynched. Like, it doesn't make any sense. <clears throat> no, but those are deep seated, long running, long standing. And still today, I mean, we see it. People are so adverse to equality. It's like, that. what is the problem? And I think because you and I definitely have a perspective of people should be treated equally or fairly. Um, you know, we, we don't necessarily see the other side of this, this whole argument because it doesn't make sense. But it's still very strong. It's still out there. Um, well, I don't think that there is like, like certainly members of the FBI might have thought that they were like doing the right thing to deal with radicals or something like that. I'm not really sure, but like the reality, how do you justify that behavior to yourself as an FBI agent? Right. And, and from like a factual standpoint, like these people wrote these letters, these people like the FBI did these things. It's not really like debatable. And it's also like way outside the purview of what they should be doing so yeah like where's administration and then also where's the accountability for those actions after the fact like now that we know these things today did those fbi agents still get their pension and their retirement like i don't know you kind of failed at your job right. <laughs> and you did really inappropriate things right i don't think that we as a, as the people should be paying for that yeah Anyways, so sidetrack back to black panther <laughs> 
Right. But you can see, I mean, like the FBI is actively involved in tailing and harassing these civil rights leaders, these huge name civil rights leaders. And um, a bunch of FBI documents have been declassified. And um, and so we know that they were doing all this stuff. We don't know in Martin Luther King's case whether or not they actively tried to plot his death. Um, Coretta Scott King and their children, you know, believed that the FBI that the FBI set up, um, you know, set up somebody to take the fall for King's death, and um, and believed that the FBI was actually behind it. And I don't know if that's true. And I don't think there's any, there's any way to really, to really know that. Um, But those theories are out there and they're grounded in this like deep distrust among the African-American community because for good dang reason, because they're being arrested by the FBI. Well, and no one's being prosecuted for the death of people of color. It's happening time and time and time and time again that no one's being held accountable. It's like their lives are not of value. It's not okay. Right. So, yeah. So, Seal and Newton, the two founders of the Black Panthers, met in college in California, where they were from, and um, they joined together to protest their college, which was Merritt College. They had this, like, Pioneer Day celebration that did not even mention African-Americans in their settling of the West. And so they basically... um, I could imagine that Native American and people of color at that point in time were like, uh, hello. (laughs) (laughs) So like we were here. Cool, cool. cool. Turns out (laughs) pioneers, not so pioneer. (laughs) There was already people here. (laughs) Uh, and people carried them across. Yeah. Okay. So they got together on this protest. Good for them. So they're they're what, like 19, 20 years old at this moment. Yeah. So they found a group called the Negro History Fact Group. So eventually though, when Malcolm X is killed, um, they, they formalized this, this Black Panther Party. And the Black Panther Party had a 10 point program. And I think Many people, you know, the Zen History Education Group does a really good job. They have several lesson plans on the Black Panthers that are worth checking out if you're an educator. And um, basically, the 10-point program, I think, is is really important to teach because, you know, what people lay out as their mission should be that's what they're saying they're doing. And if you've got straggler members who do, you know, rogue. things or yeah. rogue, like fine, but like, this is what we're about. So the 10 point program included things like freedom, full employment. They wanted uh, to end the robbery by the capitalists. Um, they want decent housing. They want fair education and history of black people. Um, they want black men to be exempt from military service. Um, and this is something that you see with, with people like Muhammad Ali, who refused to, to go fight in Vietnam. Um, they want an immediate end to police brutality and murder of black people. 
um, freedom for all black men held in federal, state, counties, and city prisons and jails. Um, all black people, when brought to trial, um, they want a jury by their peer group um, and from their black communities. And they want land, yeah, land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. I mean, those are big ticket items, <laughs> but yeah, good for you. Achieved. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it's an incredible mission when you think about all of those values that they're trying to achieve. Yeah. Well, and also it's sort of like some of the things there, like exemption from military service, like a lot of those are essentially reparations, right? Like Exactly. They, that's exactly what I was just thinking is like, they've been through enough. They were brought here against their, their will. They should choose the life they want within this country now that they're given that. Right. Yeah. And maybe not those people, but their ancestors. Yeah. Right. So, um, I mean, one generation removed. I mean, really 1960s. Yeah. Yeah. So their grandparents or their parents. Yeah. To. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the average age of a Panther is 19 years old. So this is a really like young group of people in that's ballsy. Yeah. (laughs) I I mean, think about what you were doing at 19. Yeah. I mean, I was probably a little bit radical, if you will. Like I was interested in politics and going to protests. And I mean, it's right when you get into college, you're like, where's the first sit-in I can get a part of? But (laughs) um, I don't know. That's a pretty radical group to be a part of at 19. Yeah, and I think it just shows this, like, maybe a generation gap within the African-American community. Um, But, again, half of these people are women. And I want to read a little passage to you from an article by the Smithsonian. Um, They said, women's participation in the issue of gender equality ebbed and flowed within the Panthers' history. It didn't simply improve or get larger or devolve and get worse. It goes up and down. And um, and I thought that was a really interesting concept because there are some accounts of the Black Panther Party of being a bit misogynistic and treating the women within the party sort of poorly. Um, and then there's other accounts of, you know, these are our sisters in arms and we treat them equally and whatever. Yeah. But yet a lot of the the official leadership positions went to men. And even in the 10-point plan here, you know, a lot of the freedoms that they're demanding are for men, right? Like military service for men. Um, I mean, let's go back through history. It's always man first, woman second. I mean, let's get black men the vote and then white women and then all women. It's like, what is it? Where is this hierarchy and who came up with it? Right, right, right. And I think, you know, if if women, you know, I think Black women had a lot of needs to bodily integrity and, you know, an end of sexual harassment and oh all gosh, those things yeah. that should have been probably included in that list. Um, so at the same time, though, um, the Black Panther Party is, is, 
concerning to police. You know, it's it's always scary when you see armed civilians who are on edge and always that's terrifying. Yeah. When you see people carrying guns in public, terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. I don't care who you are. It's interesting though. And um, you know, what comes to mind when when you say that is like the Trump rallies and well that's immediately I'm like, oh my God, the entire Capitol. I'm like, that is absolutely terrifying. But it's also, you know, there we live in a state where you can carry a gun freely as long as you have a permit. I was in Walmart and it was like, there's a dude walking around with a gun. And I'm like, so is this, is this when they shoot up a Walmart? Am I going to be part of it? And it's like, no, that's just the community you live in weirdo. Like people just carry guns. Yeah. But I think one thing that's really interesting about history is like the advocacy for the second amendment um, you know, really started with African Americans being like, no, this is right. Like it's here. And it's I don't love that, somehow, somehow became a like white person, rural white person thing, you know, it's, it's like a lot of things that become what they become like the evolution of women's healthcare. But yeah, it is a little, it's evolved into a little something crazy. If people fought as fervently about the second amendment as they do about others, there'd be a lot of things solved at this point in time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So one of the things that's fascinating about this is Huey Newton ends up in um, prison for uh, assault and uh, Bobby Seale is in prison at different points in um, and, and under arrest at different points. And, you know, one by one, these Black Panther leaders are are going to prison for different crimes, either trumped up or accurate. And um, for the women that are involved in this, um, they're really like fighting and following through on this cause because it is their brothers, fathers, uncles that are going to prison on these sometimes bogus charges, ridiculous accusations. And, you know, they're, they're fighting this fight because it is like so clearly unjust in their experience. And, you know, they might be, they might be raising young sons that are going to go grow up in this world that will arrest them and, and not see them treat them equally and fairly. Um, so they're they're motivated um, by this assault on black families that they're seeing. Um, and, you know, this uh, historian, Angela LeBlanc Ernest, she's the co-founder of Intersectional Black Panther, black Panther Party History Project. Um, and basically they're trying to archive and better tell the story of the Black Panther Party. And um, she talks about this um, picture that is part of the curation at the African-American History Museum. And um, she said, you know, the women in the photo, um, Dolores Henderson, Joyce Lee, Mary Ann Carlton, Joyce Means, and Paula Hill, um, these are just the names of five women who were a part of the party. They are, you know, not any in any leadership positions by any means um but they they represent this part of the party which is the workhorses 
Yeah. They show up day after day. They put in over 12 hours a day to bring this vision of the 10 point platform to life. Well, and to keep it going as several of their leaders are being jailed. It's like, mm-hmm. no, no, we've got this. Well, you're gone. We'll come up with the the bail money. We'll come up with the the permits for the next rally. Like you go, do your time, figure it out. We'll get you out. Yeah. I mean, they handled all administrative things. Um, they, they even got did- lawyers, <laughs> like vindicate yeah. them. It's like, yeah. If, if these women weren't around, those men would still be behind bars not being able to do the good work that they're trying to accomplish. Absolutely. But the women were also doing the work, you know, like they were participating in the armed um, patrols. They were organizing, they were leading protests, they were leading chants, leading cheers, they were giving speeches, they were singing songs at these rallies about different things. Um, In the particular picture, you know, this will, will put up on, um, as one of our our covers and on Instagram for people to check out. Um, But this picture, you know, these women are there and actually the day of this protest, they are um, protesting Huey Newton being in prison, right? And that sort of becomes the the rallying cry for a lot of these women. Um, So she goes on to say, um, there was no one way to be a Black Panther Party woman. They come from all walks of life, and they entered and exited the party at different times. There was a cultural moment happening, and the women in that photo reflect its youthfulness and its willingness to make a difference. If you look at the stance they're taking, their fists in the air, there's a unity and uniformity. I thought that was really pretty. That's awesome. I love that. In 1974, the Black Panthers saw their first and only female leader. Her name was Elaine Brown, and she took control of the political party at Huey Newton's request while he was in exile in Cuba. And her speech taking control of the party is pretty hilarious. She said, I have all the guns and the money. I can withstand challenge from without and from within. I thought that was pretty fabulous. Um, she said, if you want to challenge my, uh, my position, my, my power, she said, if you're such an individual, you better run and fast. I am, as your chairman, the leader of this party, as of this moment. My leadership cannot be challenged. I will lead our party both above ground and underground. I will lead the party not only in furthering our goals, but also in defending the party by any and all means. So she's a powerhouse and um, obviously a complete badass, but she ends up actually stepping down um, from the party after one of the other female members is beaten um, by, uh, by, by the membership and at Huey Newton's request. And she basically, her name was um, Regina Davis. And she said the beating of Regina would be taken as a clear signal that the words panther and comrade had taken on gender connotations. Um, And basically, she felt like this showed that they believed in the quote inferiority of the female half of us. And I thought that was kind of a sad end to the one female leader that the Black Panther Party really saw.
deeper lesson plan ideas and how to teach women's history, go to our website, www.remedialherstory.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook. If you think what we're doing is needed, please consider joining our Patreon community. Through Patreon, you can sponsor a podcast with a small donation. Patrons get access to behind-the-scenes information, gear, and bonus episodes. Patreon allows you, the listener, to ensure that the shows you love continue. This episode is sponsored by our patrons, Kent and Jamie Heckel from Ohio, Leah Tanger from Connecticut, Sarah Reardon from New Hampshire, Barbara Tischler from New York, Mark Breyer from wherever his van has wandered, Jeffrey Ecker and Brooke Neva Sullivan from right here next to me. Thank you so much for your contributions to this podcast. You make it possible. The story that I'm going to tell you is a pretty horrifying one, and I want to give everybody a a trigger warning. Um, I first learned about this story the summer before I became a teacher. I read Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States, and um, he talks about the 60s and all of these people, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, um, and and many others. And he goes on to list names of African-American men that were cut down before their time, oftentimes by police, um, whose names became rallying cries long before Black Lives Matter was even a thing. And, um, and he says, Zinn says, um, These were normal cases, endlessly repeated in the history of the country, coming randomly but persistently out of a racism deep in the institutions, the mind of the country. But there was something else, a planned pattern of violence against militant Black organizers carried on by the police and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And then he goes on to detail the event that I want to tell you about. So here's what Zinn says. On December 4th, 1969, a little before five in the morning, a squad of Chicago police armed with a submachine gun and shotguns raided an apartment where Black Panthers lived. They fired at least 82 and perhaps 200 rounds into the apartment, killing 21-year-old Black Panther leader Fred Hampton as he lay in his bed and another Black Panther, Mark Clark. Years later, it was discovered in a court proceeding that the FBI had an informer among the Panthers and that they had given the police a floor plan of the apartment, including a sketch of where Fred Hampton slept. So that's the story that I knew, and I had read that years ago. And um, recently, this story has become sort of the subject of a bunch of different films, Um, If people have seen the Chicago 7, Fred Hampton is a minor character in that film. He's seen talking to Bobby Seale, who's one of the um, original plaintiffs or defendants in the case. Um, And just this past week, another film came out called uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, which is about Fred Hampton's murder by the FBI. I had obviously heard of this story before and was shocked when I learned that not only did Fred Hampton was Fred Hampton murdered in the way that Zinn described and these films describe, um, but also 
his fiance was in bed with him when he was murdered and she was eight and a half months pregnant. Stop. Really? Seriously. God, our government did that? Yes. So let's back (sighs) up. Let's back up and tell the, the, the full story because Zins falls a little bit short in, in providing enough detail. So the Black Panther Party in Illinois, so this is the Illinois chapter, was very active and um, things became very, very hostile. And there were a number of arrests um, black people, uh, black party members, um, were killed by police, um, in, in a couple different incidents. Um, a, a, a few of them, you know, kind of went, went off the rails, um, and, and killed police officers in, in shootouts and things like that in, in situations. Mostly in or around Chicago. In and around Chicago. And, um, Fred Hampton is a very charismatic, very outspoken, um, natural leader, um, for the Black Panther Party there. And he meets Deborah Johnson, who would go on to become his girlfriend and fiance when she's just 17 years old. So she's, she's very, very young. And, um, he's also young when he is murdered. He's only 21 years old. <gasps> oh, they're just babies. They're babies. And um, so things escalate with the police. And um, the police basically got this guy who was a career career criminal to go in and infiltrate the Panther Party. And this is another thing that leads to a lot of distrust among um you know, African-Americans of the FBI, they're literally like getting a career criminal to infiltrate their, their ranks. And so, you know, what the heck? And this guy gets really close to Fred Hampton. And like Howard said, he releases, you know, he sketches up a blueprint of the building where the, the, the Panther party is, is gathered. And, um, and they come in. What's worse, it, uh, they don't include there, is he actually gave Fred Hampton some barbiturates that like drugged him up so that when the FBI came in and raided the the apartment, he wasn't going to wake up or respond. He was just what? out of it. Yeah. So. God, that's terrifying. Yeah. So. Deborah Johnson, his fiance, um, has been with him for a couple years now, and he has been in and out of jail. And she, he gives many speeches in which he basically says, like, like lays out what is on the line, lays out how likely it is that he's going to die. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're pursuing these like food programs and things that should be no brainers. He's bringing together like different, you know, groups in Chicago that, that would be adversaries. And, um, he's doing an incredible job and he's on the verge of being promoted to being like national level Black Panther Party. Um, and, the night that he's killed, Deborah Johnson. Um, so, so first of all, the 
they hear the FBI on the stairs. Mark Clark, the other person who died that night, um, was holding a gun and was shot through the heart and his gun went off. And that's the only shot that the that the Black Panthers fired that night was just one. And meanwhile, the FBI shoots. Uh, Zinn said between 82 and 200. I've heard 99 is like the number of shots that were fired into this apartment. 99 shots to zero to one response, one responding shot. And I just like having been pregnant, been eight months pregnant. And all the hormones, all the like connectivity that you feel with that baby, you're Deborah Johnson and there are bullets flying everywhere. And her response is to get on top of Fred Hampton to protect his body, which I think is very fascinating that that's like the level of devotion and commitment to this cause that she has, that she's willing to risk not only her life, but also her unborn child's life. And, um, the police come in and uh, by her account, grab her by her hair and pull her into the other room. And um, so she's 19 years old at this point. Um, and when they come into the apartment, um, she recalls straddling his body to protect him from the barrage of bullets and um, somebody yelled and was like, stop shooting, stop shooting. We have a pregnant woman, a pregnant sister in here. And so she's dragged into the kitchen. Um, and there's a bunch of other Black Panther Party members that are sort of standing in this kitchen area. And a lot of them are like bleeding and, and bleeding out. And by several people's accounts, the officers then entered into the bedroom where Hampton is lying there, sort of like drugged up and unconscious, and they shot him dead point blank. Oh, my God. So he wasn't killed in like a firefight. He was just shot. And what Deborah Johnson said was, I heard a voice come from the area, I guess from the dining room area, which was the kitchen off from that area. And someone said, he's barely alive and he'll barely make it. The shooting, I heard some shooting start again, not much, just a little shooting. And then someone said, he's good and dead now. Whoa. So that was her account of the story. And granted, you know, she's, she lost her spouse. And so who knows, you know, the, you know, if she like, I don't know why she would lie about that, but um, it's a pretty traumatic experience to lie about. I mean, but it sounds like there's a lot of witnesses there that are available to account for this. The entire time you're telling me this story, all I'm thinking in my mind is, is this a communist country? We're in the middle of a cold war. These things are happening. We're fighting against communism in other countries and it's happening in Chicago. Yeah, a single party to, sort of like, yeah. Yeah. You would think that differing voices would be allowed to speak. Um, yeah. She, along with. And free, free society. <laughs> yeah. She, along with the other um, party members, are arrested. And um, she is charged with two counts of attempted murder and aggravated assault. 
and a bunch of people um, obviously like raise money to bail her out. And um, she gives birth to her baby a few weeks later, right? Because oh my gosh. she's pregnant. And so she names her baby Fred Hampton Jr. Um, so he was born December 29th, 1969. Um, this obviously sparked outrage across the city. And it is one of the most like hotly contentious things in the media at the time because it's really nobody really knows what happens right and there's all these different people saying different things um and so they i mean they all go to trial um she said that at some point in the trial um Quote, some officer of the court brought in this big plastic bag with the blankets from the bed that Fred and I were in, and it had blood on it, and he had just sat the bag down in front of me. And I remember thinking, these people are not going to drive me crazy. I'm not going to focus on this. But that was like, you don't have to feel any guilt about not participating in this. You're not doing, or sorry, you're doing the right thing. And like, I just think about the trauma that it's, she, that's like immediately remind us her her fiance the man of her child a bag is put in front of her with their blood on it like that would send me spiraling immediately and the ptsd you would feel from that like my goodness what is wrong with people yeah so in May 1970, there's a bunch of ballistic tests that are done and forensic evidence re-examined. And basically the state's case is thrown out because there's no it's murder. Yeah. I mean, they came in with a search warrant looking for guns and they end up shooting 99 bullets into, into this apartment. And um, it just was completely unjustified for the, the legal rationale that they had to be there. And um, so then in 1971, in kind of this like disconnected uh, situation, a bunch of anti-war protesters break into an FBI um, building and steal a bunch of documents and release them to the press. And it, these documents um, revealed that there was from the tippity top of the FBI all the way down, all of these cases of conspiracy by the FBI. And it was revealed that um, we, like, we know that J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, knew about this raid, knew about the informant, knew about all of this. So like it went literally all the way up to J. Edgar Hoover, um, this conspiracy. The, they, um, you know, there's, uh, the, they now take their case into a civil court and um, they are um, awarded $47 million to the families of Hampton and um, and the other um, Black Lives, I'm not Black Lives Matter, Black Panther Party member, Mark Clark, um, you know, like, because 
this was really, really bad. The government at the time, though, said this does not concede any wrongdoing, which <gasps> yes, it does. You just yes, it does. <laughs> the court just told you you had to pay a lot of millions of dollars, nummies. Like really? Yep. Yeah. Like talk about not getting it and like just eat your crow, dude. Like get a clue. You're wrong. You did a bad thing. Own it. Good God. Yeah. So she's really interesting because not only does she do what many uh, African-American women who spouses were assassinated, right? We've talked about Medgar Evers. We've talked about like so many people on this podcast. Um, So not only does she go back and um, fight the legal case, um, but she actually just transforms her life. And um, she changes her name from Deborah Johnson to Akua Najiri. Um, and this was a kind of a movement of that, that generation of African-Americans to shed their slave names, right? Malcolm X famously gets rid of his last name. Little, right, yep. Right, to try to, um, to try to, you know, have a name that is uniquely theirs and and recogni- recognizing their heritage as African-Americans. Right. Um, so I, I thought that was kind of interesting. She does move to Africa for a little bit um, and, um, and comes back. Her son um, is... Uh, Active, they're both alive today, and they are both um, active in Black Panther leadership. Um, they um, were a part of and actually on set for the filming, and so they they had a lot of, um, of say in this new film that just came out recently. Um, and, I, and I thought that was really interesting that they they cared enough to be involved and tell the story. That's amazing. Um, William O'Neill, the FBI informant who, um, betrayed them and possibly... Where's that dude these days? What's, what's he up to? Yeah. So his story's really sad. Um, in 1990, they created a documentary that basically, um, interviewed all of these, all the people that were involved in the civil rights movement and um, he was interviewed for that. And um, he, the night that the documentary aired, um, he committed suicide. Oh, no. And you because, have to imagine they had some leverage on him to get it on all. would take a lot to turn against your own race and say, you know, that that's what you're doing. I don't know. I just, it doesn't make sense. Like a reasonable person. Yeah. So they, they had him on charges for, um, like he had been caught and basically they were like, okay, instead of sending you to prison for X number of years, we, you can become an informant for us. And, um, and so, yeah, like he, they did have leverage on him for sure. Um, but 
you know, it was, it was horrible. One thing that's really interesting um, is that Deborah Johnson and Kuna Jiri um, went to his funeral and um, to William O'Neill's funeral. And um, she said, I had planned to spit on the casket and then turn it over. Um, but when I got there, it didn't look like O'Neill in the casket, and I froze. I kept saying, that's not him. One of the brothers there said, oh, yeah, that's him. But it was a different O'Neill that was in the casket, so I didn't get to do what I had planned to do, planned for days to do. So that was really interesting, just this acknowledgement that, like, his betrayal had destroyed him and he got a payout from the FBI. He was paid like over $200,000 from the Whoa. FBI for his time um, and service. Um, and like, you know, I mean, he, it was a full on betrayal that led to this guy's murder and uh, two, two guys murders. Yeah. I mean, he committed suicide because of his own actions. Like yikes. Yeah. So it's a pretty horrible story with a lot of male characters, but I think that Deborah Johnson's role is really important. And I thought, you know, looking back at Howard Zinn, he's a very progressive historian. Um, but my biggest criticism of him is that he makes the same mistakes that every other historian makes in that he doesn't include women when they are there and when they are central to the story. Yeah. Deborah Johnson is literally the one whose testimony um, about the FBI and how they, he was alive and they shot him point blank, right? Like that testimony is powerful. It is important and it adds character it's and life the, to the, the story. story. You start with her. <laughs> like you start, you tell the story from, from her perspective. Like it, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to leave her out. Right. I mean, she went on to have his child to, and that, that adds, like life to this this guy is a father he's a 21 year old father you know like yeah. this is not and and she is a part of that but then the fact that she pursues this right she could have said screw it I'm I'm leaving this country. yeah I'm out this is too scary and I don't want my son to be involved she continued to do work yeah she continued to do the work and she continues to do the work to uh to fulfill the points and i think that that's really a powerful piece of the story so teaching about the black panthers i think is really important help give them flavor and and help understand that they you know yes they were violent and yes they did uh have these police patrol patrols that um probably got out of hand in some cases um but at the same time there was an active plan to you know like there there was they were in some ways justified because you see yeah. what the FBI is doing and so it's like what so it's um well I think what you're asking is have a critical lens and get provide students with both sides of a story not just what's been um curated through media over years that made sense at the time it's more than that and it's more complicated and more complex and just share both sides of it. Because if you, if you don't, you're not allowing your students to be critical thinkers and really dig in on what, what their viewpoints are and where they believe the right and wrong is of it all. And honestly, the story that, you know, you just shared, there is no right and wrong in that scenario. It's just crap. All of it's crap. Yeah. And yeah. So 
but I'm, I did not know about, I know it's just, it's sad. It's sad about lives lost at a really young age. That was unnecessary when they were trying to do really good work and what could, you know, he had accomplished in his lifetime had that not happened. Um, it's really sad, but I also didn't know anything about his wife or his fiance and the mother of his child. Yeah. And I, and I think she is just like one of the many women whose story in the Black Panthers gets overlooked because she isn't scary. <laughs> well, and she doesn't hold a title, you know, yeah. when you think about the officers of the Black Panthers, right. and they're and not women. Right. And that internal misogyny that we're seeing within, within the Black Panthers, right. um, you know, not, not getting women into these these top leadership positions um and 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 not really prioritizing women's issues right i mean the 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 issues of the black panther are women's issues because it's their husbands and children and everything like that um but but yeah there are other issues that could have been more central to to the platform um but yet 50% were women and and i don't think that that is is maybe known or represented well enough in history classes. Yeah. Good, good news. It's in Forrest Gump. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so I do think that a really good inquiry to pursue with students would be something to the effect of define the Black Panther Party. Because I think in and of itself, like even though that sounds like a very simple you could look up the definition yeah um, the the what they were about and how the degree to which they were dangerous is so debated um i think that that would make a a really um interesting and compelling inquiry for students to pursue and deborah johnson um and and this story of fred hampton is an example of how the Black Panther Party was persecuted and um, attacked by the FBI. And it could be one of many stories that students pursue to better understand this party and what that party's legacy really should be in American history. Who's that, the FBI? (laughs) (laughs) I'm teasing. It would be, that would be a great lesson plan to go through with students. So is this one that's on the website? We're going to have it up very soon. Awesome. Cool. Thanks, Kelsey. Thanks, Brooke. I'm Brooke Sullivan. I'm Kelsey Eckert. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.